Welcome to Alumni Voices, a podcast from the University of Oxford. I'm Guy Collander, and every month I speak to a former Oxford student about their career, life after Oxford, and memories of their alma mater. In this podcast, I'm delighted to speak to a pioneering neuroscientist known for championing scientific research. Baroness Susan Greenfield is a professor of pharmacology at Oxford, a writer, a broadcaster, and a life peer in the House of Lords. Her research investigates three areas, the impact of digital technologies upon our minds, how the brain generates consciousness, and new approaches to neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Baroness Greenfield, thank you very much for agreeing to discuss your research and your links to Oxford. It's a great pleasure, Guy. Firstly, you are very worried about how the internet, video games and social networking are changing the way we think. You have spoken of a wake-up call and you will address these issues at a session called The Brain of the Future during this September's Alumni Weekend in Oxford. Could you tell us why you are so concerned? Well, I think I approach life generally as a neuroscientist, and any neuroscientist will tell you that one of the fascinations about the the brain, the human brain especially, is that we will adapt to the environment. And at the human level, this means that given everyone has a different environment and a different lifestyle, that this will impact on your brain and shape your brain cell connections in a way that no one has ever had before. So even if you're a clone, an identical twin, you're going to have a unique brain, and that's why I call the mind. Um, I don't think anyone would refute that, Um, but what is particularly controversial and interesting, and certainly what I'm looking forward to exploring in my talk, is if, as I shall argue, the 21st century environment is unprecedented, then we might start to see brains and minds that are unprecedented. And I think we need to explore that possibility, and we need to harness the opportunities and be alert to the, the risks that this might pose. And above all, we have to Um, sort out what we want, what kind of environment do we want that will shape the brains of the next generation. And that's why, beyond neuroscience, just as a citizen of the 21st century and someone that's going to grow old by the middle of this century with people um, running society who are currently what's called the digital natives, um, I, I think it's very important. It's one of the most important issues that we should be addressing in our society now. And your book, Exploring the Subject, is called Mind Change. Mm -hmm. Just like climate change, you say that the implications are global, unprecedented and controversial. And you mention things like uh, loss of attention span, uh, lack of empathy, envy, comparisons, (laughs) which are made very easy via social networking. What are the things that really have come across when researching the book? Yeah, um, well, I think... The fourth aspect that's parallel with climate change is it's multifaceted. Just as climate change can be broken down into many different questions and problems, such as alternative energy and water shortages and so on, so mind change, as I call it, uh, can also be broken down into lots of of separate issues, but broadly they would divide into three areas. Um, One is the use of search engines and how that is changing how we learn, if indeed we do learn, how we remember, if indeed we do remember, Uh, how we process information, how we do or don't convert that into knowledge, all those issues. Um, Social networking sites and how that impacts on interpersonal relationships, um, as well as identity, how you see yourself in the world. Um, And finally, video games and how that impacts um, on attention spans, on possible addiction, on perhaps being a bit more aggressive than we were in the past, um, and also uh, how we might be more reckless. Um, So all these issues need to be unpacked separately, and I do in the book do that. And then one tries to draw that together and look at the sort of profile that might be emerging. And it is one that I, for one, would want to deal with. I don't think I'd want to wholeheartedly embrace 
possibility of people who are much more fragile in their sense of identity, um, who don't have strong interpersonal skills, have short attention spans, who might be a bit more adversarial, um, who can't distinguish between information and knowledge, who seek instant gratification. Um, these are issues, along with some of the benefits, like having good sensory motor skills and so on. But I think um, if we want to bring out the best in the next generation, and this is the first time we have the opportunity to do that, we are facing in our privileged society a scenario where we could live to be 100. One in three of the kids born today will be 100. So I think we need to face up to how best to get a good quality of life and bring out the best in an individual. And in order to do that, we need to unflinchingly face up to both the benefits and the problems that the screen culture poses and um, shape an environment that is the environment we want. But it does beg the question, what do we want? And you do paint a dystopian view of a world dominated by technology at the end of your book, Mind Change. You write about people becoming less and less comfortable with face-to-face mm. -face contact as they are bombarded mm -hmm. with electronic data and become mm -hmm. trapped in their own bubbles. Mm. Increasingly, we're seeing that in public today with many Indeed. people glued to their phones. So is that already happening to a certain extent? My own view is that it is happening. Now, of course, this is obviously controversial because people seek simple answers and sound bites. And I've been misquoted as saying this harms the brain. And of course, what might be unpleasant or undesirable to you might be perfectly acceptable to me. Um, for example, a short attention span, I might live with that, whereas for you it might be a really... Um, unacceptable issue in someone. So I wouldn't like to use the word harm because that implies objective value judgments. But clearly, um, I personally do feel that if we look around us, yes, you see people that are not establishing eye contact, you hear stories of specialists have to come into schools to teach children how to communicate. Um, I have a very big post bag, almost 99% from concerned parents and teachers. If you're online 10 hours a day, that's 10 hours not going for a walk, not establishing eye contact, not smelling a flower, mm. uh, not giving someone a hug. That will obviously impact on how, especially if you're very young, on how you deal with life. Mm. Mm. And you describe screen time and social networking as a kind of junk food for the brain. Mm. Do you ration your own screen time <laughs> and use of such sites? Oh, well, me personally, it's very easy because uh, given I'm a baby boomer, um, I'm a digital immigrant rather than a digital native. Um, and to be honest, I cannot see the point of Facebook and Twitter and all this. I, I truly, it's it's not that I've, I'm tempted and I'm resisting it, but I truly don't need it in my life. I've got real friends, and of course I use email and the phone and so on, and occasionally Skype, but on the whole, I don't want to share my personal life with 500 other people, you know, who, who, you don't, who I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, nor do I want to tell people what I have for breakfast, or even my closest friends. I find it rather sad in my own perspective, um, when it does dominate people's lives. Hmm. And science was not your first love at school, yeah. uh, as shown it. by well, your choice <laughs> of A-levels. I mean, Latin, Greek, ancient history and maths. That's right. Yeah. So uh, could you tell us how things changed when you were a student yeah. at St Hilda's? Yeah, Oxford? so what happened was initially at school, which was Godolphin and Latimer, it was a very good girls' school in London, I had a very inspirational Greek teacher. And I think had she taught spot welding, I'd have done that, you know, I mean, so I think that shows you how important teachers are. And just back to the old thing of mind change, I think we need to really think about teachers rather than iPads in the classroom because they inspire you in a way that a device never can. So um, partly because she was so inspirational, I did four classics. I enjoyed maths simply because I liked the cleanliness of the problems and the, the pure thinking that was involved. Um, I mean, my science was horrible. It was just facts, and um, you just copied down the facts, and that was it. And it wasn't... 
I couldn't see any insights and I couldn't be creative anyway or have used my imagination anyway. Um, so for me, it was no contest. Um, because I'd done classics, I was interested in philosophy. So when I came up to Oxford, although I did the entrance exam in classics and they said, would I want a place in that? Um, I knew from the get-go that I wanted to do philosophy. And I'm sure this is still the case. In Oxford, uh, you can either do PPE, philosophy, politics, economics, or two of the three Ps, uh, physiology, philosophy, and uh, psychology. I didn't have any physiology. I didn't even know what it was. I thought it was you know, physiotherapy. I didn't quite know what that was, and I didn't have any science. So for me, it was psychology and, and philosophy. I didn't want to do economics. All the questions that I'd raised as a schoolgirl, I could see potentially could be addressed in a different way by looking at the brain. And uh, my tutor, Jane Mellonby, to whom I'm eternally grateful, who was a medical tutor at St Hilda's at the time, I always remember, this is 1973, she said, I think it'd be a laugh if you were a scientist. And, and you followed that advice? Yeah, no, well, she then set me up to go and see Professor Payton in the Department of Pharmacology. And I remember this really clearly. Um, he was sitting there and he said, um, so do you know what a millimolar solution is? And that's like asking an arts person or anyone, have you heard of Shakespeare? Yeah. And I said, well, frankly, no, I don't know what it is. And he's never mind, you can tell us about Homer and the coffee breaks. And I think this is an important point because it showed how Oxford was putting a premium on enthusiasm and motivation, and I would hope a modicum of raw intellect, as opposed to, in a bureaucratic way, just ticking boxes, saying, well, you haven't got chemistry O-level, go away, you know? The fact that he had faith in me, as indeed to Jane Mellonby, I'll be eternally grateful to, and I think that is special to Oxford, and I'm very, I think that's a very important aspect of Oxford University that I would hate to see diminished because um, if someone's enthusiastic and you know, motivated to do something you should let them have a go and to see connections between disciplines is really rewarding and fulfilling and it does get you to what we could regard as the truth. And maybe neuroscience and uh, philosophy they're a bit like a horseshoe they're very close oh, together they're not, they're not at other ends of the no, spectrum. Absolutely, absolutely and I think um, again because I was very privileged to have done philosophy and indeed classics you can put it into that context. So you studied here as an undergraduate, yeah. then also as a postgraduate, yeah, so, yeah, um, and then, then you've won scholarships yeah. and secured yeah, various yeah, different posts yeah. in yeah. the departments of physiology, yeah. pharmacology, yeah. St Hughes College, right. Green College, which yeah. is now Green Templeton, mm-hmm. and Lincoln College. Mm-hmm. So what is it about Oxford that keeps you here? Oh, lots of things. Where do I start? I've always regarded this as my base, even though... I spent a year in Paris and I spent time in New York doing postdoctoral research. I always knew I was coming back here. Um, I think it's because when I very first came here, I always remember this, going to Freshers' Fair, and just seeing all these different things you could do. And, but learning very quickly that you had to be very professional at what you did. You know? And so if you were to do acting you know, without, you had to be very serious about it. If you were doing sport, you, would, you had to be dedicated. And I think the first lesson I learned, and something that was very important to me, is Whatever you do, you do it the best you can and utterly professionally, and you don't just, you know, there's no time for dilettantes, you know. So I also learned that, as I met, you know, a lot of different people, some were going to be journalists, and so yeah, that, um, that it caters for so many different types of people, and it really is trying to bring out you as the individual. Um, I think another thing is the um, tutorial system where you have just one or two others, if, if that in it and I've seen both sides now of the tutorial system in that having been a recipient of it where you had a tutor that believes in you and says I think they'll laugh if you're a scientist and so on and then when I was a tutor at, um, at Lincoln I remember with one student once we had a three hour tutorial you assume the person has done the background reading 
which means you're not actually teaching some, you're not teaching them facts, but what you're doing is putting those facts into a context and look at the implications, the importance of it. And that I found intellectually very challenging and rewarding to do. I also like very much the collegiate atmosphere, and I'm, perhaps because I was, before I was married, um, um, when I was tutorial fellow at Lincoln, I lived in, and I really enjoyed the full college life. But I enjoyed in the evening, after a day in the lab, wearing jeans, changing into something a little bit more salubrious, and you know, having wine and talking to economists or historians or mathematicians, you know. And one of your great strengths mm. is science outreach. Yes. Um, you continue to be a pioneer in this area. You've written bestsellers such yeah. as The Human Brain, mm. A Guided Tour. You've led the Royal Institution from mm. 1998 to 2010. Mm. And your career has involved promoting science to a non-specialist yeah. audience. Yeah, well, I think the other issue there, guys, is that because I know what it's like being patronised by scientists, because I was, I know what it's like on the receiving end of that. And so, therefore... I'm very aware as I'm talking to the general public, you don't use jargon, you don't use acronyms, you know, and you use paraphrases and you use metaphors. And it's something that for me is just a natural and courteous way of talking to someone. I know that people applaud me for that, but it's sad that they do because really I think all scientists should be like that. <laughs> One thing that does sadden me hugely still is um, getting girls and women to do science and to stay doing science. And I read a report um, about 10 years ago now for the then Secretary of State for Trade and Industry on the tension and recruitment of the women in science and it's a battle that has not been won yet, not just getting schoolgirls to do science um, but also to have childcare facilities for uh, women in their 20s and 30s who have children, young children but at the same time want to maintain a, you know, a full-on five-star science career. And your list of accomplishments and awards is incredible from writing bestsellers <laughs> to setting up a biotechnology yeah. company where we yeah. are here today yeah. in Cullum from being the Observer's Woman of the Year to being recognised with a CBE. Mm. What is your proudest achievement? Um, do you know my proudest achievement was when um, the Queen came to open the refurbished Royal Institution in 2008 when I was there. And because I was director, I was allowed to choose um, who you know, was presented to Her Majesty and the Duke of Edinburgh. So top of the list was my mum and my dad. And I think that, someone saw the picture afterwards and they said, now you can die and go to heaven. Now you've done that. <laughs> so I think, although that's not necessarily an Oxford-based achievement, it was because of Oxford that made me the person I am that enabled me to do that. So yes, indirectly, I'll thank Oxford for that. Perfect. Yeah. Baroness Susan Greenfield, thank you very much for sharing your distinguished career and your research. To book your place at Baroness Greenfield's lecture on Friday the 18th of September at the Alumni Weekend in Oxford, or for more information about the rest of the weekend and the other activities of the Alumni Office, please visit www.alumni.ox.ac.uk.